Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today's episode marks episode 76 of the show. And uh, with us today is Nick Jesuay, CEO of Lancaster Pollard. And for those of you who don't know Nick, he actually started as an intern at Lancaster Pollard back in 2000, and since then has found a way to make his way up the ranks. So I definitely think that uh, he's got a lot to teach everybody. Anybody who can make his way to CEO in 17 years must know something. So uh, sit back and uh, enjoy the episode. And again, hope you guys take something away that you can apply to your lives today. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and uh, ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on. And uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software they serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today is Mr. Nick Jesuway, and he's the CEO of Lancaster Pollard. And Lancaster Pollard is a national investment banking firm based in Columbus that focuses on providing financing and advising services to the healthcare, senior living, and housing industries. And Nick joined Lancaster Pollard as an intern in 2000 and has earned his way up the ranks, holding multiple management positions before becoming CEO in 2015. And uh, Lancaster Pollard was also recently acquired by Oryx USA, and we'll be talking about that later. But welcome to the show, Nick. 
Thanks a lot, guys. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here today. So kind of one of the first things we always like to ask is, what does like a typical day look like for you? Yeah, um, you know, it's evolving, I think. I, I, I've been in the CEO role now for a little over two years, uh, but I feel like the day-to-day is always changing. Um, you know, we are a pretty growth-oriented company, and so a lot of what we try and focus on is where's the next angle to continue growing, uh, what sectors or products we need to get into. And so a lot of what, what that entails is really just working with our staff here in Columbus and around the country to uh, really try and empower them and drive them to, to continue to grow the business. One of the coolest things that sticks out to me in that intro is it says, you joined as an intern in 2000 and then it wraps up CEO in 2015. And it's just like, you, you just picture what happened in that 15 year grind where you made such correct decisions and push yourself to kind of make that jump. So I think the best place for us to start off though to build into that story is to talk a little bit about your background, your childhood, and then we'll work our way up through like high school and college and, and then get into it. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, so generally a Midwesterner. I was born in northern Indiana um, outside of uh, South Bend where Plymouth is. Um, Grew up there through elementary school, uh, moved to the Buffalo, New York area. Um, you know, growing up, um, you know, big influences were sports, uh, runner, swimmer, lacrosse player, uh, mostly after I moved to Western New York and everyone plays lacrosse. Um, you know, uh, camping, hiking, sort of typical Midwestern stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, was in Buffalo uh, for my high school uh, career. And uh, with, you know, not being a D1 athlete, uh, I still wanted to try and pursue athletics. Uh, lacrosse and swimming were the, the two that I was uh, probably better at. Um, and so I, I started looking at good academic uh, D3 schools that also had good sports programs. And, and Denison has a very good swimming and a very good lacrosse program. Um, good academics, you know, and so it, it was just a, it was kind of a perfect fit for me. Small school, I like being in a small environment. Um, and uh, the bummer of it is I ended up getting hurt really bad uh, training to try and walk on for the lacrosse team. And so I, I ended up um, hurt my entire freshman year in, in, uh, in rehab and uh, didn't get to, didn't ultimately get to play sports there. So. What happened with that injury? You know, um, I was just uh, playing a lot of club lacrosse, uh, working out all the time, and I ended up um, uh, rupturing a disc in my lower spine that uh, it, it wasn't a big deal, but it was just very painful, and, and it just made college athletics pretty much impossible. So. Yeah, and there has to be, you know, a shift of your mindset there as well. I mean, how did that impact you? What, what allowed you to kind of get through that? And, you know, realize, hey, there are other things in sports out there and kind of, you know, make your move into your career and your next, you know, your next part of life. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, um, as, I, as I get older and reflect and get asked questions about, gee, how did you get from, CEO, or from intern to CEO, things like that, I would say one of the things that, um, you know, I've always been a really inquisitive person. I've always tried to dive into it just I just get I guess fascinated by things and so even in high school I read a lot um, sort of pursued interests um, in and out of, of, of school and athletics 
And so, you know, college is like a buffet for curiosity uh, with social activities, with, you know, club or, you know, non or lower competitive sports. The ability to take at a school like Denison, you know, it's a phenomenal liberal arts school. And so going in there and just having this buffet of really interesting classes and professors. And so I just dove into that and, um, uh, you know, sort of built uh, my curriculum around things that interested me, whether it was photography or political science or philosophy, economics. And, um, and you know, just kind of built a really interesting and what I thought was um, exciting you know, curriculum both in, in class and with social activities and that type of thing. So that, that really, you know, made, made college a lot of fun. And uh, a school like Denison, where it's small um, and, uh, you know, you can get really good exposure. You can get to know professors really well. And it, just, it worked really well. It clicked for me. So I might be naive on the topic, but Denison's like a diamond in the rough here. Like I've heard, I've realized how good of a school it is and never knew anything about it growing up in Toledo, Ohio. Like had no idea how prestigious it was and like how good their academics were. So it's kind of interesting concept. But one thing that you talked about there, your core major was economics, correct? It was. So it's interesting. So some of like the most intelligent people I think I've ever met study economics. I think it's like it brings together so many different dynamics into you know, one core concept, you got math, you got political science, you have a lot of moving parts. Um, what kind of struck you to want to study the field and drew you to, you know, economics as a whole? Yeah, um, so this is uh, uh, going to sound really bad, but I, I actually studied economics because it required the fewest credit hours to get a major. <laughs> <laughs> and it was reputable. Well, I um, that part. <laughs> right. No, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I think that you know, economics is very interesting, and it, it blends all of what you said. You know, there's the mathematical component, there's the social psychology, there's just a whole bunch of, com of components to it. Um, I, I would say, though, that, that in all honesty, when I was looking at it, uh, when I was looking at options, economics uh, literally had the fewest credit hours that you needed of any major on Denison's campus. And so it let me take philosophy and political science, and not just the the ones you had to to get a minor, but the ones that I wanted to take. And so, you know, I, I, I probably could have had multiple minors if I had just taken one class I didn't really want to take, but I had more fun sort of just, just uh, picking and choosing. And so I think that that was a nice blend for me where it wasn't all econ all the time or all math all the time or all, you know, one thing all the time. And there could be some aspect of it where it's more like correlation than causation. So it could be that the people that I've met went into economics and then came out smarter because I think it makes you very well-rounded. So it's like we talked about in one of my classes the other day how the evolution of the CEO and before it started out and back in the 80s it was like if you were an accounting major and then it kind of evolved into, um, I forget what they said the second field was and I won't remember right now, but like I don't see why economics, it probably might already be there, but I could see it, you know, slowly evolving more and more as we're becoming more of a globalized economy and things are just, you know, constantly starting to wither within each other. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think that, uh, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but one of the things that I, I found was that economics isn't really, is, is, is not finance. And so what I, initially when I graduated, I was disappointed that I didn't have more finance tools, you know, crunching numbers and net present value and like all the stuff. 
but the one thing that economics does is it's, it's conceptual and it teaches you to think about and kind of to your point, synthesize lots of things. And I think that the acquisition of skills using Excel or understanding how to model, you know, these types of returns, you know, you can learn. I mean, you can teach yourself, really. And once you've done that, then it's all about systems thinking and synthesizing data and, and causation, correlation, like thinking about the big picture. And so I think that, I think that's where there's a lot of strength to economics in general, but, but even the liberal arts education, I'm a big advocate of it because while I felt at a disadvantage for a year or two uh, coming out of school, being in finance and business, because I didn't, again, have the, the same skills that someone coming out of like a Fisher would have that went to undergraduate business. Um, but as I studied on, you know, nights and weekends to accumulate those skills, once I had them, I felt like I was better able to put them to use in, because of the conceptual components of it. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about uh, landing that internship. Uh, so long ago with, well, not that long ago, 2000 with uh, Lancaster Pollard. So where, where did you, uh, so it was Denison, Denison's local to Ohio, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm yep. from California, so yeah, I yeah. have a very bad conceptualization <laughs> of where things are. Apparently you know, I'm not the only one who knew it was a diamond <laughs> in the rough. <laughs> um, but uh, so what brought you to, uh, first off, uh, Columbus area and uh, drew you towards Lancaster Pollard as the internship? Yeah, so I was, um, I was, I had a pretty diverse net that I was casting. Um, I have an older brother who, through his connections, I was looking at real estate development, which is the field that he's done. Um, uh, you know, I, I met with a lot of the banks, um, and I was kind of pursuing a lot of mostly business, e, you know, real estate development type stuff. Um, you know, uh, really, there was a a gentleman by the name of Rich Harmon, who is no longer with LP, but um, he's a Denison alum from the 80s. Um, he convinced the principals of the company that they should have an internship and came out to Denison. And I mean, it's very serendipitous, but we literally were waiting in the Career Development Center in the lobby to see the same person, um, him to try and generate an internship program, me to try and get an internship, and we sort of hit it off, and it's, you know, it's sort of storybook, but, um, you know, he, he impressed me, um, they posted the internship, you know, half a dozen of us came out and interviewed for it, and, uh, and, and I got the, ultimately got the nod for it. You um, think that initial meeting was part of the reason you landed that? I, I, I think so, I mean, I, um, I, I don't think it hurts. Um, you know, we have developed a pretty big internship program now, and one of the things we try and do is get people out into schools to meet with people because, um, you know, job selection is the more minutes, hours, days you can spend with people, the more you're going to make the, you know a good decision about their long-term capabilities. So I think that the half-hour... Uh, that I spent kind of just shooting the breeze with him probably helped him to know me better than someone that he only had a formal interview with. Um, but you never know. 
Yeah, I was going to say, because, like, a degree in economics, I'm sure you were going up against guys in finance. And, you know, I mean, like, I know economics going into a finance as a degree is a pretty common path, but just landing a job in finance with a background in economics, that had to be kind of a challenge. Were you actually doing the financial side of things at first, or were you more um, providing, like, theory to models and things? Yeah, a lot of it uh, initially was helping build models. So it was stuff that I could, I could sort of take home and, and spend 10 hours trying to figure out how to do something that it would take a, someone with a finance major 10 minutes, uh, which was perfect for me because I could just sort of use the blunt force method of getting work done. Um, and so the internship was a lot of helping to build some models um, and really just learning. I, I ended up sort of the best thing I think I did was I just tried to learn as much as I could. I asked a lot of questions. Um, I was always trying to figure out how can I help you with this and what can I help you with that. And so I ended up getting pulled into some cool projects, um, some uh, larger deals that we were working on at the time. And the company, you know, when I, just for scale, you know, when I joined as an intern, we were about, uh, I think, 11 or 12 people. So it was, it was small. I mean, it was... It had been in operation for a decade or so, but it was startup-y-ish. And, uh, you know, we're almost 150 now, um, so uh, much, much bigger. So I think that just helped. So by the end of the summer, I had really um, added value, I think, and, you know, that was helpful, I think, in getting the nod for a full-time job. And what made you want to stay? at Lancaster Pollard. So, I mean, yeah, they offered you the job, but what made you want to accept that offer and, and stay and not pursue other, other options? Yeah, I think um, I would say that it's, uh, I wouldn't use the choice to go to a Denison versus like uh, Boston College, which was another school I was really interested in. Uh, I, you know, there were a lot of factors, but the size of the school and being in a little bit more of a intimate environment uh, won out. Uh, for Denison. Um, I had similar opportunities to be at bigger companies or be at a small company. And I, th uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of rationalizing it or explaining it now years later, but I think I felt like um, the opportunity would be greater to be in a small firm um, than it would be to be in a larger firm. Um, and there's a million things that could have happened to have proven that totally wrong, uh, but I think in this case it, it, it worked out to be the right place. I was able to get really good exposure. The, uh, you know, my, my mentors in the business, uh, Brian Pollard, uh, one of the co-founders, and Tom Green, the former CEO, were very merit-based. They didn't care what your resume said. They cared how you produced, and if you produced uh, added value, that's, that's what they wanted to see, and they rewarded that. And, I was willing to produce and roll my sleeves and work and learn it, and so it it's it it sort of was a was a perfect environment for me to be in, um, and, uh, and and on both sides, I think it worked out well uh, on both sides. Yeah, and can you take us through kind of some of the different roles you held with the company as you progressed your way upward all the way up to CEO? Sure. So. Um, you know, I joined as a credit analyst. So, you know, the firm, um, uh, you know, mostly provides debt financing through a lot of different structures 
for the senior living health care that you mentioned. Uh, we do some equity investing and uh, balance sheet lending, but mostly we're a debt provider. Um, the sectors we serve are complicated. Understanding um, the ability of a hospital to repay debt or a nursing home, you know, you, you have to understand real estate, but then you have to also understand the myriad operational challenges of those businesses. And so that's one of the things that we like as a company. Uh, it's complex. It's you can differentiate yourself just by being a student of the business. It's harder to commoditize that business. And again, being curious and sort of throwing myself into the job the same way I kind of threw myself into college. Um, I, I was a credit analyst and I just studied a lot about, you know, uh, both the finance side of it, but what does it take to run a nursing home and what does it take to run a hospital? And, and so, and I still, I still, I still do, um, you know, because it's a very dynamic business. But, you know, starting out as a credit analyst, as a small firm, um, I, uh, I saw, as I, you know, as I got to know how to really work the business, I saw a lot of opportunity to, um, you know, institute processes, um, you know, streamline things. I, I sort of found out that I'm kind of a, an efficiency nerd you know, I, I really liked looking for, well, gee, how can we do this the, the easiest? How can we automate components of it? How can we, um, how can we find the shortest path to get from A to Z? Um, and then let's build the process. Let's make it replicable. Let's train people um, not to be widget making, but, but to really, you know, just best practices. It's sort of... I, Again, I never would have known that, but I, I really kind of geeked out on a lot of that. And so what that led into was I started to, I took over the internship program a year after I was on the job. So I went out, I did all the recruiting, I'd hire interns, hire full-time people, um, uh, mentor them, which led to management. Being this efficiency nerd led to uh, me kind of uh, owning a lot of the processes. If you're gonna do this deal, you know, Nick will teach you about it. So I started leading all of our training and um, people after me have built it. But I think a hallmark of our company is uh, we are, our training is, I think, second to none. Um, you know, it's, it's in classroom, it's web-based, it's um, uh, very granular, but also high level. And so when people come in, we can be very specific as to, oh, you know that this, this, and this, but you don't know this, this, this. Here's your training curriculum. You don't know any of it, that's fine. We can teach you uh, how to do this business completely soup to nuts. And so, you know, I, I started some of those things. So it, it, a lot of my career was very organic. I, I wasn't shooting for the fences. I wasn't, you know, uh, I'm gonna be the CEO. It was very much a, hey, I, I learned how to be a good credit analyst. Let me mentor other people. I'm figuring out how to make the process better so let me kind of own the process and train people on it and, you know, and over time that led to being a credit underwriter or a credit, you know, um, officer within the company where I was signing off on expose, you know, making a loan or doing things like that. Um, one thing that, you know, may be unique, uh, but I, I think is meaningful is at the time, you know, maybe four or five years into the job, company's still small. 
almost everyone was going from a credit analyst to being a banker, a salesman. Um, uh, one of the best decisions I think I made was to turn down an offer internally to be a banker. And instead, I, I, I knew that there was really good opportunities for us to grow and grow rapidly. And I, 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 I knew that the linchpin wouldn't be our ability to sell, but our ability to execute. And so, in my view, I saw the, 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 the area I knew I could add the most value was in hiring, training, building the process, and sort of tooling the company to go from doing a few deals a year to doing 20 or 30 deals a year, you know, to really scale. And so I turned down uh, a job offer that the principals had made to be a, a salesman, which, you know, is a very lucrative, if you're successful in it, it's a very lucrative job to do what, what I just knew better suited me. And it, there was not, that was not without a lot of angst and discussions and what do I do with my life and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think it's one of the most important things that I did in, the, in, in it was, was sort of acknowledge that uh, at that time, going out and just being a salesman probably wasn't the best thing for me. I don't know that I would have been the most successful and the people we ultimately hired because I didn't take that role have been phenomenally successful and now lead a lot of our origination efforts. Um, so I think that was a really important shift because it, it let, me, let me sort of play to my strengths a little bit. So you see, or you hear a couple of really unique attributes in your story that, you know, we've heard piecemealed across different successful people's stories that we've interviewed. And one of them starts off where you took work out beyond what were your, you know, initial responsibilities and kind of took additional roles on your shoulders that you just enjoyed doing or you felt like you could add the most value. And then on top of that, the ability to be mature enough to step back, look at your life, you know, in 10 to 15 years and realize, okay, I want to do right now where I feel like I'm the best at and I can add value rather than what what play am I going to make that's going to, you know, escalate all these dominoes and trying to play the future effect. And I think that's sometimes where people get caught up and then you find yourself unhappy and not where you expected to be uh, had you just added value where you knew you were good at and, mm -hmm. and you could have could have made it. So I think it's really cool to hear all those elements kind of come together in your story. And it's uh, it's an interesting concept. It wasn't just like somebody noticed, you know, a lot of intelligence in you and kind of brought you up to the top. You brought yourself up to the top just by kind of sticking to what your roots were. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I don't want to downplay the, the mentors that I had in, you know, in Tom and Brian. I think they were, um, they were great at pushing me, allowing me to push myself and to pushing me out of my comfort zone. Um, so it's a good push and pull there. Um, they, they let a lot of line out, let me take on more responsibility. Not every company, you know, sometimes you run into ceilings where you want to and are ready to take on more and you don't get it. They were very good at giving me as much line as I could take. And um, so I think it was, it, was a, it was a good environment for that. But I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think if I, if, I, um, if I did one thing looking at it in hindsight was when I was an analyst, my main focus was to be the best analyst that there was. And it wasn't to be the best associate, you know, to become associate or be an AVP or it was just to be the best in my role. And then all of a sudden it was, I was, you know, taking on more responsibility because it just sort of gravitated that way or snowballed that way or whatever. And you talked a little bit about being outside of your comfort zone there. So what I'm interested is, you know, what did, 
when you look back, can you think about your hours and your daily life and what the grind was like? I mean, was it for you 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every night for 10 years straight and, you know, your social life went to the side or did you have a good balance? Um, I would say, I would say that I grind, I, you know, I grind pretty good, um, uh, you know, and, and, and have the whole time. Um, not, I mean, I, I, I don't, um, I, one of the things that I think is true is, that being in a role that I felt really engaged in, having control over my work, not, not obviously universal, but um, you know, I really like what I do. And I think part of that was I invested myself heavily into learn it. And then as I learned it, then I was able to make it my own. And so, you know, I, I, um, I worked hard because I wanted to, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't because people were handing me stuff at 6 p.m. and saying they needed it by 7 a.m. the next day. Um, How did that story end up? Did you go to sleep that night? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, I think that I, I think that um, I, you know I think for the most part it was um, I you know I enjoyed my job. I invested myself in learning it, and um, it's hard it's hard to sort of say how many hours. I, I would say the first two years I worked almost nonstop because it was do my job and then take finance and accounting classes at night to figure out how to do my job. <laughs> and uh, It was just like online classes or were you taking them in it the It was both. Or? I went to Fisher. I did online. I bought textbooks. It was kind of whatever. Um, whatever, you know, uh, later I started using things like iTunes University and other online stuff. But, you know, 16 years ago that wasn't really available. So... It was a mix. It was, I mean, the nice thing was, again, it was whatever I needed. If I felt deficient in accounting, I took an accounting. If it was, uh, uh, you know, I, I needed to understand real estate finance, maybe I just bought a real estate finance textbook and looked up the curriculum at Ohio State and looked at the books they taught on and just bought the books and read the book instead of paying for the class. And um, so it was just, it was a, the, the nice thing about it in contrast to college was if I needed to learn a skill, you go buy a book or find someone that knows about it and try and digest it quickly and then you, you can apply it the next day. So, uh, You never officially walked away with like a master's or anything, right? Like you never, mm. you just kind of put these pieces together. It's like a master's, master of the streets that you got. Yeah, everything was. <laughs> master's yeah. of the streets. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, you can no, put everything. that on your LinkedIn. Yeah, right? no, that's it. It's going on tomorrow. I'm putting on my business card. And master's of the streets, Cochrane, Columbus. <laughs> that's right. No, it was just, again, I, um, uh, you know, I've always been focused on just gaining knowledge, not, not a degree or anything like that. And so it's all been just, what, you know, what do I want to learn about? You know, right now I'm really trying to focus on um, creating greater transparency among the company, um, trying to decentralize things and, you know, really empower people because we're getting bigger and more complex as a company. And so... My reading list right now is all around that. You know, how have other companies done it? How have other businesses? What's the success stories, failure stories, that type of thing? See, my problem is getting my brain focused enough to learn the things that are actually going to be useful to me in life. Like, I love learning, but like, my brain's like, oh yeah, 
Let's read about black holes, and then tomorrow we'll read about artificial intelligence, and none of this is going to help me in my day job. <laughs> if, if you have a master of the streets, Mike has a master's of nonsense. <laughs> he is just full of everything useless you could ever imagine. Perfect person to have lunch with, though, if you want to learn about, like, one thing on the table, like yeah. one, one individual thing. Right. Or Jeopardy. You could always right. go to I, Jeopardy. I could do oh, well Jeopardy. <laughs> I actually sit there, so my girlfriend makes fun of me because I'll sit there and answer the questions while they're playing Jeopardy. And she thinks it's the most ridiculous thing ever, but that's beside the point. So well, one thing though that I do want to add, like I think the thing that I'm so envious about, uh, I guess your approach to life, your personality is that I, I also love learning. I'm passionate about it, and like I just can love the feeling of continuing to evolve and grow. But like my intentions deep down are just because I really want to be like I want to climb a company. I want to be really rich. Like, and I don't even know if it's being rich. I think I don't think like money really is a motivator for me as much as like. Sometimes it can be a scorecard in a professional life, which sounds bad out loud, but I don't know, it's, it's real for me, I guess. But for you, it seems like it was more or less just the straight love of learning. I've met some other people like that, and it's, uh, it's a unique ability to have in life. Like Some people are always driven by that end intention, mm -hmm. and uh, it's hard to kind of bring yourself back and be rooted in the moment, and that's kind of cool to hear from your, your point. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think the one thing, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think I enjoy learning, I, I enjoy, knowing more I mean a lot of it I think you could say I'm a little bit of an accidental CEO um, that was uh, you know my wife says that I'm the most ambitious unambitious person she knows because I, I'm not aggressively striving I wasn't aggressively striving to again sort of climb the corporate ladder um, but it, it I guess it worked right I mean, if I was in a different company, I probably would have had to play politics more. And but again, that that was the beauty of being in a small company that had the right leadership and had a successful trajectory that I was able to um, help contribute to. I think that's sometimes what it works out, though. I think it's like it all comes back to that intention, and I think that sometimes we set our intention so much on being successful that we lose sight of what's actually really important like whether it's the people that we're around or actually adding value to what we're doing and different aspects like that but i know mike's fighting at the fighting at the bit to throw that next question out there so i'll let him roll with it oh, next. i'm just well, gonna go out i'm on guys, this black fuel coffee right now and i could just talk for like an hour about really deep <laughs> stuff that nobody wants to hear about well see josh will sit there and talk and like he says all these things and he keeps asking questions that digging deeper and deeper and deeper and then we don't get to like some of the important things we were supposed to talk about on the outline. Yeah, so we'll I want to talk about be, this acquisition. So right. we gotta get back So on. I have to be the bad guy and come sure, and say, okay, sure. let's let's get to the things that we were supposed to talk about now. And let's talk a little bit about, you know, your 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 two years as CEO and how things mm -hmm. have changed and then kind of dive into that acquisition by Oryx. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so June of twenty fifteen, uh, I was promoted so um, uh, you know, I think that um, a lot of, um, it, it's interesting, um, it's easy, what, what, I, what I would say is that for the year leading up to me becoming the CEO, uh, I was sort of armchair quarterbacking a lot. I, I obviously was not the CEO, but I was a part of virtually all of our strategic discussions and, you know, thoughts about growing the business and working very closely with the uh, the two uh, co-owners of the business. Um, it's very different to be in that position where you have a voice, but you're not the decider, to sort of have to roll into that chair where you're the decision, 
And so I would say that part of it was drinking from the fire hose a little bit just with psychologically uh, thinking about, okay, you know, this is my decision or at least this is how I'm going to handle things versus um, it's, it's easy to do when you're sort of part of it, but you're not making the decision. It's a lot harder when you're actually the one having to make the decision or do the call. But I mean, I think that a lot of, um, a lot of the things that I've loved about the company, entrepreneurial, growth-minded, um, you know, intimate and family-like, transparent, uh, are the things that I want to I wanna try and do and focus on. And I think what, what, you know, we're, we're a company that um, to do that at 150 or 200 or 250 is a very different, you have to manage things very differently than doing that at 30 or 40 where you're all in the same place. You know, you, you, you get up to go get a drink or a coffee or go to the bathroom and you basically pass everyone in the firm. And so a lot of it is really trying to think about how we can, how we can, you know, continue, grow, and foster that culture in a company that we want to continue to scale and grow the, the you know, revenue and production and people, um, but still keep it very young, um, vibrant, focused, people own their work, all the things that, you know, I, I'm still so passionate about the business and what we do and, and what I've done. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, the, the, the acquisition, the sale or acquisition, depending on what, what you know, what side, uh, is a little bit of an extension of that. Um, you know, um, we have grown to a point where uh, we need more capital. We need, um, you know, a little bit bigger balance sheet. Um, and, um, and, you know, Oryx is a, was a great partner uh, that we think will, will be really helpful in that. Um, I'm sure there's a ton of follow-up questions. I, I, I guess a couple things, you know, one, I hope uh, that I don't have to go through the sale of uh, the company, you know, in the near future. It's a, it's a brain drain. Um, you know, you have to run the business, manage things. Um, while you're, you know, going through diligence and meetings with companies and the whole dating process and negotiating, and uh, it, it really and, and the problem is it consumes all of the sort of executives' time um, because you don't want to disrupt the business, so the executive team ends up, you know, being completely distracted, uh, but but not having the luxury of being distracted because the business has to operate, decisions have to be made, and so it's very, it's very challenging, um, and I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that it's over. Uh, we closed a, a month ago tomorrow, uh, so we're, we're almost to the one-month mark. Yeah, and your team uh, stays in control. Things don't change too much from Lancaster Pollard's end, correct? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the, one, um, the one interesting piece, and, you know, people uh, listening to this, uh, if, if they, they may have some familiarity with this, but... Oryx actually owns a um, quasi-competitor of ours in town called Red Capital. Uh, Red Capital is mostly a multifamily finance shop, so they mostly finance apartments, market rate and affordable. Um, they do a little bit of senior uh, living finance. We're almost the reciprocal of them, so we do, you know, again, dominant in seniors and healthcare. We do a little affordable multifamily finance. And so that also added a, 
added and continues to add an element of we now are crosstown competitors that are now cousins, brother, sister, whatever you want to call us. And so what we're working on right now is taking our affordable housing team and focus and centralizing that business effort under RED um, so that we can have a singular team that really focuses on that and there's not competition. And then looking at their seniors team, integrating that into Lancaster Pollard. So it's uh, certainly there's complexities that wouldn't exist um, but for that. But, um, but the intent is that, you know, Red manages their business and we seed that business with additional people and hopefully that, you know, allows them to continue to grow. Um, they seed us with their seniors team, again, which lets Lancaster Pollard be really the senior and healthcare finance vehicle. Red be the multifamily and affordable finance vehicle. And while we, we um, do a lot of uh, common financing structures, it's different sectors, and so we sort of remove the, the overlap. So we're in the midst of going through that process uh, right now. So, Yeah, it sounds like strategically you guys are definitely on uh, an exciting path and the right path. And as long as you guys can just pull off the execution, which I'm sure you could, it would probably be you know, a really cool step forward. Have you thought about what the next, you know, what your role within the company is going to look like over the next five, ten years? And I guess just the trajectory of your team in general, besides just the way that you guys are going to um, start working alongside Red Capital. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, again, sort of trying to be consistent. My my job right now is to be the best CEO I can be, um, and so I'm I'm really focused on. Um, what is the, how does the company need to operate in order to maximize the talent that we have? I think our, our team is, is so talented top to bottom. Um, how do we need to continue to grow products, services in order to serve our customers? Um, you know, our, our aspirations as a company is to be really a full service, you know, the Goldman Sachs of senior living and healthcare finance. Um, and so a lot of that is, well, what expertise do we need to have in order to provide additional advisory services, capital services, financial services, and um, and, and how do we continue to sort of move uh, horizontally in, in adding that? And so the, the near term, uh, the immediate term is make sure uh, we execute on this strategy of, 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 of the Red and Lancaster Pollard. Um, the Near term, beyond that, it's get back on the horse and, and really start riding to, you know, continue to grow the business. Um, I think that, you know, there now is a really interesting umbrella that Oryx has built. So they have Lancaster Pollard, uh, they have Red, they have a company out of Boston called Boston Financial, which is a, a also an affordable housing equity investor. And then they have... Um, uh, effectively the uh, investments in real estate, whether it's construction lending or other types of capital that's available. And so this umbrella of real estate finance that Oryx is building is, um, is, is, is really interesting. I think there's a lot of complementary aspects. And so the CEOs of each of those businesses sit on a board. Um, so I'll be, I'll be uh, I just joined that board effectively with the acquisition. Uh, so, you know, my, my time is going to be focused the vast majority on just continuing to run Lancaster Pollard, 
but I'll also have the benefit of sitting down with these other company leaders and thinking about how can we work together, how can we collaborate, uh, how can we look at, you know, what is becoming a pretty big real estate finance umbrella of companies and, uh, and, and grow not just each individual business, but the collective umbrella. So I think, I think those, those are, uh, I will have more than, uh, more than enough on my plate just with, uh, with those items. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, kind of as we start to wrap up here, we got a couple more questions we want to ask. Uh, you know, kind of one of the first ones I want to jump into is focus for our listeners. And, you know, a lot of people out there, young professionals, people kind of going through their careers, have a hard time finding the right career path for themselves. And I think, it, you know, something unique about your story is obviously, you know, you stayed with the same company the whole time, but you really knew yourself and what you were looking for. So do you have any tips or advice on how people can, you know, figure out what the best fit for them is? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's hard. I wish I had a magic answer. Uh, I think the, the best advice I can have is um, I think that people need to put 200% of themselves into whatever they're doing. Um, uh, because nothing bad will ever happen if you put 200% of yourself into, into whatever it is. Um, even, if it, even if you don't like, uh, if, if you take job A and you're not sure if you like it um, and you decide to put 50% in, then it's probably going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. right? If you're given half, half yourself to it, your peers know that, your bosses know that, it's not going to open doors, it's not going to get you referrals or recommendations if or when you want to leave, but you put, you put 200% of yourself into that job and, and wring it dry, then you'll know, you'll know if you hate it or if you love it, and if you love it, then you're going to have every opportunity, hopefully, to either stay where you are or go where you want. If you hate it, then you're going to get people that are like, man, I, I'm so sad to see Johnny leave because he was so good. He gave me 200% that you're, you know, I think more opportunities will open themselves up. And so I, I just think, I think you have to just 200% at everything. And then I, I do think you have to make sure you take time out to take stock in where you're going because the risk of that is you put 200% of yourself into a dead-end job and 10 years later you wake up and you hate yourself. But I think, I think if you put if you really invest yourself in it and own the work you're doing, you're going to find out pretty quickly whether you really love it or not. And, uh, and then you'll be really well positioned to either roll with it or switch gears and uh, get good recommendations and referrals. And I mean, that's how you, you want people that are like, man, this guy works so hard. I, I hate to see him uh, leave, but if he's going to leave, I want to help him find a place to land. So, so I think that's the best approach. Yeah, and our final question, Nick, uh, centers around our motto here on the show, I guess you could call it, and that's live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about what it means to us, uh, what do you think of when you hear the phrase and how might it apply to your life? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that, and I, I loved hearing it because uh, nothing good ever happens by standing still or not exposing yourself to some discomfort you don't get stronger if you don't push your muscles to fatigue. You don't get smarter if you don't push your mind to its limits. Um, you know, every day uh, as I've grown in the company and responsibility, it is 
uh, it is more about magical, it is, I'm sorry, it's less about magical talent and more about getting better at making decisions, at handling stressful situations. And it, you know, some people, you, you know, can get thrown into that, but a lot of it is just exposure, right? Exposure to, to stress, exposure to responsibility and the, the weight of it. So I think it's important. I think it's whether you're going to decide to take cold showers every morning or, you know, take on more responsibility or work out in the gym, I think discomfort uh, is the key to growth. So I'm all for it. All right. Well, that's a great answer, Nick. Hey, we really appreciate your time on the show today. And uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. This was great. Perfect. And uh, Conquerors, that was Nick Jesway, CEO of Lancaster Pollard. And I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, learned a lot. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they've made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.